Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, September fifteenth episode of Poets and Muses. We chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen Arate. You can follow us on our website at poetsandmuses.com or via social media on Instagram, Twitter, or SoundCloud under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or on the upper right-hand side of our Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. With us today is Erin Khan, with whom I will be discussing her poem "Deconstruction of the ABG." Or Asian baby girl, and my poem "Deep Dive." Before we do that, however, I am going to go over all the poetry events taking place in the valley during the week of September sixteenth. On Tuesday, September seventeenth, from six to eight p.m., Connect and Heal will be hosting its weekly poetry writing workshop at the Chandler Community Center at one twenty-five East Commonwealth Avenue in Chandler. On Wednesday, September eighteenth, from six thirty to eight thirty p.m., Changing Hands Bookstore will be hosting the first of two writing workshops with Kelly Nelson, called "Found Poetry." This is the Changing Hands Bookstore at sixty-four twenty-eight South McClintock Drive in Tempe. From eight to eleven p.m., Phoenix Firebird Events will be hosting its "For the Love of Phoenix" open mic. At Grand Avenue Pizza Company at 1031 Grand Avenue in Phoenix. Wednesday is also the last day to sign up for this month's Pocket to Me, which will take place on Saturday, September 21st, from 6:30 to 9 p.m. at Palabras Bilingual Bookstore at 1738 East McDowell Road in Phoenix. Interested participants should email info at palabrasbookstore dot com. Again, that's info at palabrasbookstore dot com. Palabras is P A L A B R A S. On Thursday, September nineteenth, from seven to nine p.m., Long Known Publishing will be hosting its weekly Phoenix Poetry Slam at the Lost Leaf. Which is at nine fourteen North Fifth Street in Phoenix. From seven thirty to nine p.m., District Four Poetry will be hosting its monthly poetry open mic at Jared's Coffee Tea and Gallery at one fifty four West Main Street in Mesa. Sign up begins at six fifty p.m. From eight to eleven p.m., Quinton Oni will be hosting his Collective Expressions open mic. At Jobot Coffee and Bar, which is at three thirty-three East Roosevelt Street in Phoenix, on Friday, September twentieth, from eight p.m., Rooted Sound Sessions will be hosting its Spoken Word Slam at Lacuna Cava Bar at eight thirty-one North Third Street in Phoenix. Interested participants should email rsspx at gmail dot com. Rss As in rooted sound sessions, phx as in Phoenix, at gmail dot com, rss phx at gmail dot com. On Saturday, September twenty first, from nine thirty a.m. to twelve p.m., the East Valley Poets will be hosting their monthly short program and open reading at the Tempe Pile Center, 
which is at 655 East Southern Avenue in Tempe. From 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., the Urban Arts Market will be taking place at 5644 South 16th Street in Phoenix. Some poets and muses past poet guests will be featured during this event. From 6.30 to 9 p.m., Pakitumi will be taking place at Palabra's Bilingual Bookstore at 1738 East McDowell Road in Phoenix. And now let us turn to our poet guest of the week, Aaron Khan. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for coming on to Poets and Muses. Hi, Imogen. Thank you for having me. So you brought with you today the poem Deconstruction of the ABG, or Asian Baby Girl. Yes. Um, but before we get into it, I would love it if you would tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, my name is Erin Kong. I am a second-generation Korean-American. I just graduated from Arizona State University with a BM in musical theater performance. Yes, and a minor in Asian Pacific American Studies. Um, so a lot of my work centers around the idea of like this collective Asian American identity mm-hmm. and the idea of generational trauma and how that affects Korean diaspora mm-hmm. and how that translates from memory of war and how that continues to affect like a second generation, third generation on. Yeah, yeah I'm also a co-founder of an organization. We're still new. We're called Desert Diwata mm-hmm. and we are centered around honoring and uplifting radical Asian American and Pacific Islander creation in Arizona. Nice. Very, very nice. Yes. Yes. It's actually pretty rare, I found. Well, I've only been here for a little bit over a year, and mm-hmm. I found that it's been difficult to run into Asian American poets. So, you know, I always get very excited when I run into one. I'm like, where have you been hiding? <laughs> yeah. So it's yeah. really cool. I mean, is that your experience as well since you kind of grew up here, right? Yeah, every time I meet another, like, Asian American poet, whether it's, like, at a slam event or, like, through another, like, collective showcase, it always surprises me. Right, right. Yeah, because I'm used to being, you know, like, the only one in the room. Yeah, yeah. So, it's kind of cool, though, to know that we are out there. It's just a matter of, like, finding each other. (laughs) Yes, yes, that's the thing. And that's the reason we wanted to start Desert Diwata, Uh just because Asian creators in general, we're all over Arizona, like Phoenix Mm -hmm. especially, but we don't know each other and we're not connected. So we wanted to create a platform that would connect us to each other. Um, What does Diwata mean? So Diwata is Tagalog for um, their indigenous goddesses. So yeah, before Spanish colonialism and like U.S. imperialism, Diwata were the most powerful, like, feminine sort of beings. And then after colonialism, they were kind of downgraded to, like, sprites or, like, little, you right. know. <laughs> because, you know, women of power. Right. So Low scary. Right, right. <laughs> but my co-founder, Danielle Gannon, is Filipina. Right. So we wanted, because a lot of Asian orgs in the U.S. too are very East Asian-centered, mm-hmm. so we wanted something that would encapsulate also the Southeast Asian experience and the yeah. Islander experience. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Definitely. <laughs> there is some kind of video floating out there. I forget which organization made it. Mm-hmm. The, the kind of default stereotype when people say Asian is East Asian mm-hmm. and Northeast Asian. Yes. <laughs> like three nations, Korea and China and J- Japan, mm-hmm. pretty much. Yeah. So, <laughs> And people are really proud of themselves when they know those three. Right. Like, uh, <laughs> there's a lot more nations mm-hmm. than that. Yeah. A lot of cultures. 
things. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's really cool. So I'm glad you organized that. And this particular poem, Deconstruction of the ABG, is part of your book, first book? Yes. First book, Korean Morning Rituals. Yes. Tell us a little bit about it. And you said this particular poem is your second poem or second it was the second poem I ever wrote for slam okay yeah okay yeah, yeah, yeah. so Korean morning rituals as a whole kind of delves into the idea of something called Han mm-hmm. so in Korean there's something called Han which refers to the sort of deep guttural emotional well inside of every Korean oh, person okay. it's like a cultural phenomenon that's a result of hundreds of years of occupation and violence right, and war right, right? right and then there's this person calls Ho Young Chu who wrote something on the idea of post-memory Han. Mm-hmm. And so post-memory Han is Han experienced by the Korean diaspora. So second generation, third generation. Um, so like I didn't directly experience the Korean War, Japanese occupation, right? Yeah. But I feel like the sort of imprint of the generational trauma as it carries through. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of what this book is about. It kind of goes into my family mythology as mm-hmm. well as my experience as a Korean American woman in the United States. That's cool. That's yeah. very cool. Yes, yes, yes. And how did you get into poetry to begin with? Um, I've always written poems ever since I was young. I used to write these really bad songs. <laughs> um, and it was kind of just like a form of escapism, I think. Right, right. And then I didn't seriously start considering performing poetry or writing poetry till probably like two years ago when there was at Megaphone Phoenix, they used to have the Phoenix Poetry Slam. They moved over to Lost Leaf on Thursdays now, but they would have Poetry Slam. So I signed up for one and then I won and I was like, oh, this is something I could do. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And then I entered into a poetry workshop class with her name is Susan Nguyen and she's Vietnamese American okay. and I had never had an Asian American teacher before in general right, right. Um, so that was a really cool experience because she showed poetry by other Asian Americans and I was like oh this is something I can do I can write about more than like my little angsty like teenage crushes I can write about <laughs> like things of importance and mm-hmm. politics and my identity so I just had a bunch of poems and I was like well I guess I should put these in a book <laughs> yeah awesome so, yeah. yeah they're amazing book uh it's an amazing collection of poetry I had the pleasure of listening to you read at the book launch at Palabras I was blown away so <laughs> thank it's you. awesome thank you for doing this thank you so much yeah so if you like read this the deconstruction of the abg please yes and we'll talk about it sure okay Asian baby girl, or the ABG is a cultural phenomenon. A GMO originating from Orange County, SoCal, inhales bubble tea like white girls down chai to brunch. Wears three pairs of false eyelashes, five-inch heels, two push-up bras, itty-bitty crop tops, ripped-up daisy dukes, and hairsprayed so stiff you are afraid and this heat will catch on fire. Asian baby girl doesn't fear fire. Asian baby girl has no fear. Asian baby girl is fire. Can claw out your eyes with her two-inch acrylics. Pop in circle lenses with said acrylics. Asian baby girl can do anything she sets her mind to. Makes a career promoting detox tea on Instagram. Let's boys jack off to her bikini pictures. But don't you fucking touch me! Asian baby girl is untouchable. Asian baby girl is paradox. Asian baby girl is legend. Asian baby girl is immortal. Asian baby girl is wasted after two shots of soju and crying in the club over her ex that vaguely looks like a Santa Barbara Justin Trudeau. Asian baby girl is bad at math to shatter stereotypes. 
Asian baby girl wants to order the Thai chicken salad at Applebee's but can't because she is representing her entire race. But, oh, my God, guys, it's, like, so good. Asian baby girl is named something like Esther or Grace and is probably a pastor's daughter. Asian baby girl probably doesn't get along with her pastor father, but she knows that's because of generational trauma and the aftershocks of the Cold War and Western imperialism. And low-key, she knows the only reason there are any Christian Asianists is because of violent evangelical colonialism, but Asian baby girl knows she isn't supposed to talk about that. Asian baby girl doesn't want to scare you off. No, Asian baby girl is here to listen to you talk about your favorite Hitchcock movies and why the Beatles are the greatest musicians of all time and awkwardly shift while your bro rants about making America great again while she's suffocating in what he calls mail order bride bubble wrap. Asian baby girl finds it hard to breathe in the airplane's cargo deck. Stuffed alone in the dark with everyone's baggage, Victoria's secret thong riding up her ass, thinks of the plane her parents used to escape the motherland as it imploded in two, thinks of the bombs that missed them by a hair, thinks of the planes that dropped the atomic bombs, thinks of the planes that since their inception have kept people who look like her in line, wonders if this plane she is on will lead to her demise, but Asian baby girl isn't supposed to think about this. Asian baby girl was only taught to tease her hair in window shop sports cars to pray to a blue-eyed god she doesn't believe in. Asian baby girl feels self-conscious at the museum's exhibit on jewels of the Orient. Feels every white man's eyes on her while they rattle off facts about swords and spices nodding at her like she's supposed to understand, digging her acrylics into her palms, ignoring her blood. Asian baby girl knows thanks to museum curators and men like Marco Polo, she will live forever. Always 18 years old, breasts pushed up, hair teased to the sky, all false lashes and short shorts, Valencia filter, always an outsider in her own skin, unsure who she is beneath all that geisha, not sure where the lipstick ends and where her mouth begins. Do not tell her she is more beautiful without her makeup. She won't believe you. And besides, she'll say, this isn't to make me beautiful. This is for war. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. So what made you decide to write this? This poem came at a very specific time in my life where I had just joined an Asian interest sorority Mm -hmm. uh, off of Phi Gamma. So I was surrounded by Asian girls a lot more than I was growing up. Mm. And being immersed in that culture and learning about my culture too, because I grew up primarily in the white suburbs, you know, and a lot Mm -hmm. of my friends. And that was kind of the culture I was raised in. So to be surrounded by all these Asian girls who are also different and who I felt, I don't know, very connected to, I learned about the ABG or the Asian baby girl. Mm. It's interesting because there's also a weird class divide in the subculture of ABG-ness. But the one I was familiar with was, oh, Asian baby girls defy the model minority stereotype. They're known for (laughs) drinking honey and wearing their hoops and posing in front of expensive cars, like that sort of thing. Mm. And it kind of became this joke within the Asian American community and ABGs aren't taken seriously, Mm -hmm. you know, um, Anytime we'd go out or wear something that was, like, more showy or whatever, they'd be like, oh, are you an ABG? Like, is this an ABG thing? And for me, after meeting a lot of, like, the supposed ABGs, right, Mm -hmm. I'm like, these people have substance. They work incredibly hard. They're doing, like, majoring in biochem and working six-hour shifts at, Mm -hmm. you know, these restaurants and stuff. And... For me, it was like, okay, well, what does the ABG represent, right? Mm -hmm. How can I tell a story that makes them as, like, a whole person rather than this sort of, oh, like, she wants to be white or she wants to assimilate or fit into this culture and not she's not Asian enough, right? Um, Whatever that means. Right, exactly. Whatever sort of (laughs) weird gatekeeping (laughs) that's involved in that. But, yeah, so this poem kind of came out of inspiration like by my sorority sisters. Oh, so, cool. Yeah. Very, very nice. Yeah. yeah, and some of them 
were there. Yes, a lot of them were there. And it's so cute because they'll come out to all my stuff, and none of them are really, like, poetry people. Right. Um, But it's nice to have that support. Yeah, it is really nice to to have that, whether or not they have interest in poetry in particular, but they have an interest in you and supporting Mm -hmm. you and being part of this sort of sorority. Sorry, what was the name? Alpha Phi Gamma. Yes. But I also see a lot of very personal lines, you know. Yes. So pick some out. Tell me. Oh, right. Yeah. Give us the story of your life. (laughs) (laughs) So something that I know personally, I feel, I'm trying to think of how to say this, as someone who's multifaceted, (laughs) dumb as that sounds, I think that there's this image of, especially with the idea of the ABG, and I know a lot of people have told me personally, like, oh, you're such a badass, like, you're out there doing things, you're not afraid of what people say about you, you know, like, you're the strong Asian woman, and then, you know, I'll be in the club after two shots crying over my ex-boyfriend, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) And I think that, especially women, like, we're not allowed that duality, Mm -hmm. and we have to be one thing or the other, and we're not allowed to be a fully fleshed out human being yeah yeah because there are fluctuations right you can't always be strong you can't always be expected to act a certain way that's Mm -hmm. i mean true for everybody really because you know like who is just so singly dimensional right yes exactly (laughs) and that's something and i realized asian women in particular we're kind of viewed as almost like a shell that people can project things onto, <laughs> right? Which happens a lot, I think. Must be the porcelain skin. Yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then I know, too, and you probably feel this way, like, the idea of what W.E.B. like DeBoss said about double consciousness in relation to, like, being a black man in America. But mm-hmm. I think as an Asian woman, we're very conscious that when we go in public, that's what people see, right? Like, yeah. every sort of choice we make is a reflection of the entire Asian community or us. And There's then a lot of pressure. Right, exactly. Yeah. And it comes to, like, little stupid things, like me being afraid to order the Thai chicken <laughs> salad at Applebee's, right? This is what happens when you're woke. You, you gotta fall back into sleep. Right, exactly. And I was like, oh, I really want it. And also, Koreans in America are very known for being, like, strong Christians. Like, that's kind of what they're mm-hmm. stereotyped to. Yeah. Yeah. And so I know a lot of PKs are, like, pastor kids, right, oh, okay. who all have biblical names. Right. And there's, like, the stereotype about the PK that, like, oh, like, they act out because their parents are supposed to be, like, these holy people that lead the church, lead their communities. Right, right, right. I'm not a PK, but there are a lot of pastors on my dad's side of the family. Okay. They were some of the first people to help evangelize Korea in the oh, wow. 20th century. Yeah. Okay. So that's kind of like where my family's from. You kind of have to do extra work to understand them. So that's right. kind of like in the poem, like you understand what happened to your family and why they act the way they do and why you in turn act the way you do. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Definitely talks about a lot of the generational things that you were mentioning before when she's being placed in the airplane cargo. Mm-hmm. That aspect, that yes. I, I love the the Victoria's Secret song. Getting up <laughs> this is the culture we live in. So there's a lot of Americana in mm-hmm. all of the descriptions. At the same time, first or second generation Americans are almost judged for exactly that. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh my god, you're too American. Oh my god, you're not American enough. At the same time, right. right. So it's it's really frustrating. Yes. Yeah. And also, tell me, explain this. The ending, I really want to understand the war. This is war. The yes. war of just being Asian American, being being accepted. What's the war that you're fighting? Ooh, the war that I'm fighting. Or she's fighting. 
It's the idea of simultaneously navigating identity, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to figure out where you fit. Mm -hmm. And then also it's the personal struggle and then the struggle of also finding out how to decolonize like your mind, how to Mm -hmm. undo the systemic barriers in America, right? And coming to terms with that. Because I think in order to do like the groundwork or in order to impact like your community, you have to go through yourself first and see, okay, what barriers do I have in my own mind, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think a lot whenever I put makeup on, like in the whole like idea of the geisha, you know, I think, oh, why am I contouring my nose so it looks thinner? Why am Mm -hmm. I highlighting my cheekbones? Why am I trying to make my eyes look bigger with eyeliner? And it's this whole idea of trying to fit into a Western narrative and maybe not even being conscious that's what you're doing. Right, Um, right. Unless you take the time to critically, you know, take a look at yourself. And for me, the war is just trying to, because I understand, especially as an East Asian woman who's also like light-skinned and educated and Mm -hmm. was raised middle class, I have all these privileges. Mm -hmm. And I shouldn't let, those privilege like this isn't the hill I die on (laughs) you know what I'm saying and there's so much more work to be done and this sort of like anti-imperialism mindset and working with people who are you know less privileged than I am right like Mm -hmm. people say like oh until like the black trans woman is liberated no one will be liberated that Mm -hmm. sort of thing Mm -hmm. right and putting them at the forefront of the conversation but then it's like, how do I do that as an Asian American woman? And how do I right. deal with that while navigating my own trauma and stuff? So that's kind right, of... Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah there, there seems <laughs> to be sort of like the scale of who is more traumatized, right? Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of time I feel like we kind of get lost in that a little bit. It's like, oh no, you know, take care of me first because I'm more traumatized. I have, and then we kind of list all the traumas we suffer. It, right. It's ridiculous. It's yeah. sort of this <laughs> qualification test that we put ourselves into mm-hmm. whereas it doesn't really matter whether or not people or on the outside sees that trauma as equivalent to theirs is mm-hmm. the fact that everybody has experienced trauma and that fact should be respected mm-hmm. at the same time realizing other people might be suffering trauma as well mm-hmm. and just not say oh just because you're not just suffering my trauma you're not suffering trauma mm, yeah. right so it's definitely a lot to navigate oh yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah for people who bother to navigate it mm. right and then that there are people who just don't give a fuck right yes <laughs> so, yeah i just love the different layers that you go through in trying to tell us a bit more about this thing called Asian baby girl which I did not even know existed yeah. <laughs> it's wonderful to yeah. know yeah I feel like it's dovetails really well with the what's going on with social media right because mm. social media really allows you to have that exterior have that very yes very solid veneer right right and then there's everything else in your life yes they actually recently did a study like last year on asian americans and social media use Mm -hmm. and their relation to alcoholism Uh and it showed that asian americans who used social media more on average had like were more prone to alcoholism which i thought was first of all i was like what a niche study (laughs) first of all but i found that really interesting because i think within the asian american community social media and flaunting on social media and I know it's, like, pervasive in every culture, but in Asian American especially, with the huge, like, class divides, too, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's just something that I found really fascinating. So, yeah, the whole idea of, like, Valencia filter. Like, I know that's, like, the (laughs) go-to filter for a lot of people because it also makes you look more light-skinned. So, mm -hmm. I 
<laughs> meaning to look up that particular filter, but I haven't yet. Yeah. I don't know that. Yeah. It's interesting. See, more, <laughs> the more you know. <laughs> and, and who is the Santa Barbara Justin Trudeau? You know? <laughs> you know, there's that whole stereotype of Asian girls dating white boys. Yeah. That's yeah, very, yeah, yeah. like, pervasive. I know, like, Ali Wong, the comedian, has talked about it a lot. But, yeah, that's just something. I don't know why that came to me. I was just like, who's an attractive one? Justin Trudeau. <laughs> Yeah, that's, he has a good looking Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> cannot argue with that. Yes. I mean, like he he's so good looking that he's got <clears throat> some orange guy very jealous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, moving on. As I said, I really love all the just so many layers that you have that's in here and that calling out all these stereotypes. It's, it's a lot. It, yeah, it's really. I mean, it's just in two pages. It's just so much to unpack. Mm-hmm. Was that something that you meant to cover all of these things when you started writing this? Or I think I just had a lot to say. Yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, like, I feel like with your first works or your first earlier works, before you can do anything else, it's kind of just like, well, this is who I am. You know, like, mm-hmm. word vomited on the page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's kind of what it ended up being. Because when I wrote this, I was 19, and I had just really begun to understand, like, the dynamics of race in this country and become, mm-hmm. like, socially woke mm-hmm. or whatever. And so after I had learned all of this, especially in my academic setting where a lot of my classmates are white, mm-hmm. there were a lot of racial sort of like microaggressions that happened that I didn't really have a vocabulary for. Right, and then right. once I had the vocabulary, I was like, well, here's everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this is actually really close to the first draft mm-hmm. that I wrote where I kind of just word vomited everything mm-hmm. when I would read it at slams it was kind of just like written out as I would say it. So then when I had yeah. to translate it to the page, I was like, I have no idea how I'm gonna so when people read it it gets the same effect right right and that was really really hard to do and I don't even know if I executed it as well as I would have liked to um I think no matter what I mean people are gonna take from it whatever they take from it right right? so it's tone is always hard to tell when it's words on page yeah I can't tell you because I heard you read it first (laughs) so like my first impression will always color what I read right but I feel like it's powerful no matter what because when you hear something as opposed to reading it, you catch certain things, right? Certain mm-hmm. things that might be the loudest or most easily absorbable lines. Mm. And then when you're reading it, you're like, oh, my God, what about this? Yeah. And then when you're doing a podcast like this, when you're talking about it, you go even deeper, like Esther and Grace, which, you know, if we're doing like literature class on this, it will be something that you will look into the background. Then, of course, pastors, children, daughters, that mm-hmm. makes sense, the Christian names. Mm-hmm. But at first glance, it's not always easy to tell why you chose particular names. Right. So I, I like the fact that this is a piece of work that can withstand multiple readings or multiple passes via different media. Mm. So yeah, thank you. <laughs> it's nice. It's really, really nice. Um, there are certain things like, oh my god, it's like so good. You know, those are the things that needs to be read out loud. You have yeah. a certain appreciation for because you have the SoCal. That's where you you guys are from, right? Your family. My family's from NorCal. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah oh, yeah. that's right. Yeah, I met that. And so <laughs> I, I love that 
the valley girl aspect that you put into the reading of mm-hmm. it and also the written form yeah. as well. So it's it's really cool. Thank you. Yeah. It's funny though because the valley girl accent is actually sort of like my normal vernacular and I had to learn how to not talk like that um, because my parents were like people aren't going to take you seriously (laughs) if that's how you talk so every time I read this I'm like oh this is how I actually talk (laughs) oh that's great yeah Yeah. (laughs) wait so the the valley girl accent has now migrated up north yeah so it's different there's (laughs) the dialect of Mm -hmm. the NorCal Valley Girl is different than the SoCal Valley Girl. What? In my experience, there's a little more vocal fry in the SoCal, mm-hmm. so it's like a little more down here. Oh. Um, and then the NorCal is definitely higher, and okay. it like there's up talk in both, though. Okay. But okay. yeah, maybe it was because I had family who went to school in SoCal, but a lot of like like my aunt, she like sometimes talks in her Valley Girl accent uh-huh, and stuff, uh-huh. and she's like fifty. <laughs> you know, I know um, because that Valley Girl, that stereotype has been around for a few decades. Yeah. So uh, you know whether or not people take you seriously because you're you're on the younger side, mm-hmm. people are gonna have to take <laughs> like yes. Valley Girl accent speaking people seriously right. because they're like. What are they, baby boomers? Right. Baby boomers? Yeah. So, yeah. Can you imagine if grandmother, silver hair grandmother, going like, and so, and That's gonna be me. I'm so excited. It's yeah. It's actually amazing, and it's kind of cool that just by the fact of aging, people are breaking certain stereotypes. Right. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. This is awesome. Thank you. So, as I told you. Your reading actually inspired the poem that I brought yes. to read with you. It's called Deep Dive. I don't know if I'm going to stick with that. Okay. Of, but it's a way it's a Yeah, yeah. I'm just like, I don't know. I'm very excited to hear it. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> nope, you will see no poem about me. I will not cliff know myself for your shorthand attention. This is not a summer read with a soon-to-be-forgotten plotline easing you into cracking the spine and gliding over the grittiness of my marrow between your greedy fingertips, sandwiching my essence in a slow grind as it turns to powdered pigment, adding another layer of color to your experience. Instead, allow the rays of your eyes to penetrate the incidental packaging, enticing though it may be, and gather the pulsations underneath with attentive ears, A truer message awaits a devout seeker, hidden to hasty pillagers. Follow your nose through the scent of a brewing salve, decades in the making, and peer into the ancient wounds filled with this concoction to comprehend their cause, bitter though their eruption, mead poison becomes. You're curious. Let that cat not die so readily, pressed between the pages of this weighty tome. Dive past the high-minded world of artfully arranged alphabet and enter the flow of a universe primordial, transmitting prehistoric knowledge, a oneness not barricaded by language, unbound by time and the limits of our contours. So good. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. How long did that take you to write? Um, I don't mean to expose you. No, 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 it's not. I basically, I forget if I wrote it on that night. Yeah, I started writing on that night. It took a few hours. And then I did a couple passes on the editing process. 
but that's pretty much yeah it's that new it's oh, basically wow. a week old wow i right? love it because it was last week yeah 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 this is partly why i love going to readings because like poetry just inspires poetry in me and i really love what you guys did all of you oh yeah but yeah especially you know your poems all the elements that you talked about are actually in my poem as well <laughs> i don't name them the way you name them i mean just it's a different form right yeah but they're all there all the considerations are there yeah and in that way it's less personal and it's more vague mm-hmm. i think you know but i love it because it's also your language it just sounds good i don't know i don't know oh, if there's a better word for it thank you thank you, thank you. Just I, like, oh, I love i love how it sounds like the <laughs> alliteration and everything yeah 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 that's what i tend to do i don't rhyme so much as I kind of play with rhythm a lot mm. when I first started writing poetry a lot of the time somewhere I would drop off I'm like god oh, Jesus what happened to the rhythm <laughs> <Yes. You know? laughs> with this I felt like it continued mm. <laughs> <laughs> but I do go back and change like small words like I had weighty book instead of weighty tone mm. before things like that yeah yeah <laughs> I also felt like in terms of what we were writing that was very similar as well is the idea of, and we didn't talk about it before when we were talking about your poem, Mm -hmm. of how people addressed you, right, as Mm -hmm. an East Asian American, as the stereotype. You know, were the lines where I said, instead, allow the rays of your eyes to penetrate the incidental packaging, enticing though it may be. And as you probably know, since you've done Asian American studies, mm-hmm. yes. is Asian American women, according to Match anyway, mm-hmm. is the most desired of women. Right. Um, <laughs> it's certainly not, not because of our individuality. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. We're just all so great. Like, yeah, we're just amazing as a class of people. We're just like, I, I mean, you know, as much as it's on the surface very flattering and at the same time so oppressive. Yes. Right. Right. And you talk about that as well in your poem, in your very specific examples of the Asian baby girl feels self-conscious at the museum's exhibit on jewels of the Orient. Feels everyone, white man's eyes on her while they rattle off facts about swords and spices, nodding at her like she's supposed to understand, digging her acrylics into her palms, ignoring the blood. Dish girl. (laughs) Yes. So that was actually based off a real experience. Mm -hmm. They had a exhibit at... I want to say the Phoenix Art Museum. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but it was on like Japanese, like samurai. It was a Japanese samurai exhibit. Okay, okay. And I went in there with this dude I was dating at the time. He was a really tall, like white dude. And also like, you know, being like an interracial couple in public, that's also another thing that you're self-conscious about when you mm-hmm. go into those spaces. But especially in that space, I was like, ah, yes, I'm the only Asian person here. Um, <laughs> everyone's looking at me, which sometimes I'm used to, but in that context, it feels like, oh, I'm part of this exhibit. Oh, God. Sort of thing, you know, and it's a bunch of like old white dudes with glasses and like, 
receding hairlines like smiling at you mm-hmm. and like making eye contact and you're like oh my god I'm just here to like you just want to be invisible right mm-hmm. which is weird because that's a whole other Asian American <laughs> yeah, thing yeah, yeah. but in those moments you know and then people are coming up to you talking to you about certain things and they're like oh well you know and I'm like no sir <laughs> like I I'm Korean and I'm here just looking at this exhibit just like you are like yeah yeah I don't know what do you mean what do I know (laughs) right exactly and also in those spaces you don't know who's going to be aggressive so I'm not about to fight anyone you know like be like excuse me like that's racist because you don't know how they're going to react if it's going to be a thing yeah so that was just (laughs) that was literally taken from my life Mm -hmm. but I feel like that's with any sort of Asian culture Asian sort of like art that I try to be a consumer of, right? Mm-hmm. And then I end up feeling almost very false anytime I'm in that space or with those people, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you also feel like you're forced to represent and usually a culture that's actually not yours. Right, exactly. Yeah. 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 It's, <laughs> I'm like, I'm not Japanese. <laughs> and Koreans are very specific about that too, right? Yeah. <laughs> Especially given what happened during World War II. Yes. Given the fact, given the fact that there's still not enough of uh, acknowledgement over what happened. Right. The comfort women yes. and everything. Yes, yes. But then that's also another layer that you have to bear as a, a Korean American because, you know, it's not really your cross to bear. You know, right. Yeah, it's it's so weird. I'm still trying to learn how to navigate the situation. Right, right, but, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> again, you're sort of stuck in a skin that's not yours per se, right? It is yours, but as I said, it's very incidental because you didn't, choose it right right it's not like you got born and then you came back you're like no this is the outfit this is the outfit <laughs> right. so yeah yeah and it's fascinating and I know a lot of people in diaspora talk about this about not really fitting in either world right like mm-hmm. not being Korean enough not being American enough yeah yeah and then coming to terms with well do I even want to be American with its history of violence and imperialism like right right why do I want colonial America to accept me, right? And then what does that mean? Right. And then with the whole idea of Korea and knowing that, like, so much of the history and ancestry is technically mine, but mm-hmm. also not really because yeah. I'm not there. I, you <laughs> right, know, like, right. I didn't experience a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And so it, sometimes it also feels like, you know, you're an imposter. Like, anytime I have to speaking Korean or if I'm like oh I love this Korean food it, right, I feel right. like am I just playing a part you know yeah, um, yeah and trying to figure out how I sort of I've been saying the word navigate a lot but yeah how I come to terms with that yeah well there's a lot of navigation to identity no matter mm-hmm. what right whether or not we are part of a minority or a majority life is about navigating through your identity yeah. and it changes right you know all the time but it's made even harder when people are expecting you to act a certain way because they're like, no, 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 no. You live in my mind. <laughs> you, know? Right. you know, whether or not they actually believe that or say that to you, they yeah. act like basically that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think that was a lot of my life. Like, not just like white Americans, but people of all races, people within the Korean community mm-hmm. who were like, oh, because you're a Korean, like, presenting woman, like, this is how you're supposed to act. Yeah. You know, like, I remember even the Korean community here, um, 
a lot of them are the people who are my age are like first generation or their mm-hmm. parents came as adults. Right. Whereas right. my parents came when they were kids. So I'm oh, a lot good. more Americanized than like the other yeah, people my yeah, age yeah. are. And you know, and they thought it was ridiculous that I wasn't a Christian or that I wasn't part of their church or that I was loud or talked with I remember when I was 13, there were these three Korean boys at my school, and they would be like, oh, yeah, Erin's a slut because she talks to other boys. And I was like, excuse me? I'm like, is this 1950, you know? It's weird, and there's a whole idea of also a lot of Asian men who feel very entitled to Asian women, right? Mm. And they think it's an act of betrayal when you date outside of the Asian community and all yeah. of that so it's not just white people who do it right 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 um, and I'm sure you can relate like just having other people and a lot of times too it conflicts mm-hmm. right like one yeah. group of people tell you you are versus what another group of people tell you right right but, like I'm because that is the diversity of life isn't right. it because everybody is an individual <laughs> and everybody come at life at different angles so when you have all these stereotypes sort of converge yeah <laughs> and it's interesting because you know white people a lot of them will stereotype and be like, oh, well, you're an Asian woman, you're quiet and submissive, right? But then people, there are people of color who are familiar with Koreans specifically versus other Asian groups, and they're like, oh, you're Korean, you're loud, and you're angry. Like, that sort of thing. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you drink all the time. You drink all the time, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's kind of like, um, <laughs> excuse me, you know, like, you're also in the Asian community, you shouldn't, you know, yeah, yeah. do that. And I know I'm guilty of that, too, like, historically doing that to other Asian groups yeah, as well. Yeah. But... Yeah, it's bizarre, and then it's, you know, and when you're young and you're still trying to figure out who you are, too, mm-hmm. and I'm like, man, I hope I figure this out soon. <laughs> no, we're no. not going to. I mean, it's just, life is a journey. I mean, in terms of identity, as I said before, mm-hmm. we're always changing, and our identity is in part defined by our experiences, right? And mm-hmm. so you're never going to be Korean-American in the way that whoever thinks that you are Korean. Right, right. Yeah. Even, even yourself. Mm-hmm. Like your ten-year-old self probably thought of yourself as completely a different Korean American uh, yeah. or completely different Aaron mm-hmm. than you are now. So yes. it's <laughs> it's really interesting to see that, and then you kind of wonder because people often see that about themselves, but they don't see that in others. Right, right. It's like, <laughs> oh yeah, I'm a person, but you, <laughs> you are this thing. You're right. And you have to stay this thing, mm-hmm. or otherwise I'm not going to be comfortable. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 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 So it's, it's this weird dichotomy or hypocrisy if you believe in bad intentions. And, right. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, we're just trying to live our life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is weird, because I wonder, do you feel like sometimes you're like, I just want to exist. Like, just... <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I just want to yes. exist. Yes, yes. It's, yeah. it's so burdensome to I mean but once you see the problems that exist in the world right especially mm-hmm. if you're community minded if you care about other people once you woke you can't go back to sleep yeah yeah it's, it's really hard right yeah yeah it actually takes effort weird <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's annoying God, yes. <laughs> yeah but you can never be feel like woke enough because there are always like certain nuances and I'm glad we're covering more and more now we're mm-hmm. talking more and more like the QIA part of LGBT 
Yes. It's being talked about more, and gender fluidity is a conversation we're talking more and more about in, in the mainstream. So all of these more nuanced conversations we're having, and I'm happy for that. I'm wondering, am, am I going to become one of those people who said, oh, that's not a thing? You know, when right. am I going to cross that uh, scary line? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I've talked about that with some of my friends too. Like, oh, you know, when we're older, are we going to be those people that are like, there are only five genders? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, because I know I was talking to my mom and she's a social worker. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to her about the event and about some of my friends who were performing their poetry who are like Mm non-binary. And, you know, she wanted to know, okay, so what does that mean sort of thing? And I think, you know, my mom's very like, socially conscious, because right, right. um, she's a social worker, right? Right, right? And for her to, like, not know what that meant, that kind of surprised me, and I was like, oh, these conversations are still very new, Yeah, like, yeah. in a lot of, like, mainstream sort of things, but I was like, oh, well, mom, you know, this is still gender binary, and right, you right. can fall out of that, and, but I think there's a lot of people who, you know, are like, oh my gosh, you know, with this administration, we're going backwards, that sort of thing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but then, you know, in those individual conversations, you see it moving forward, which I think mm-hmm. is hopeful. Yes, yes, yeah. I love that. And I think one of the good things that came out of this administration is that (laughs) people feel like it's up to them to bring it forward rather than depending on the old vanguards to bring it forward, which is is nice because it is from the bottom up no matter what. It's Mm -hmm. always from the bottom up. It would be nice to have a standard bearer who's, you know, upstanding, (laughs) (laughs) you know, small criteria. Uh, but now we're more about let's do what we can or many of us let's do what we can right so it's it's helpful but still he controls so much (laughs) yeah 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 except for himself oh my gosh it's (laughs) it's so sad because i'm also like so desensitized at this point Mm -hmm. which is horrible Mm because that's where you don't want to be but yeah i wake up and i'm like okay how many rights do i have today (laughs) you know like going through twitter what happened when i was sleeping yeah yeah Um, yeah and it's incidental too because he won't be robbing you of your rights specifically to rob you of your rights it's because he's trying to do something else to benefit himself right so it's that thing it's like you can't even diss me in in a very like slowly concentrate on me kind of manner you're Mm -hmm. dissing me as a form of illusion to do something for yourself so it's like insult on top of insult yes like, just be real. <laughs> just say what <laughs> yeah. it is. Yeah. 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 So, uh, it's disgusting. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> but no, let's talk about our poems. Yes. <laughs> because we, we, as I said before, we can move the society forward whether or not he wants us to move mm. the society forward. So, one of the things I wanted to ask you also about this, uh, your experience with the uh, uh, dating a guy who has a bro who... who Rants about make American make America great again. Yes. I had to give up a lot of friendships, I think, in the past year. Not because of like my friends who were being like openly being racist and saying horrible things, but in terms of like them being complicit mm-hmm. in it. I had a lot of friends who 
I was like, oh, yeah, we're cool. Like, we're all on the same page here. And then their friend would say something horrible or would be an open Trump supporter and build the wall and blah, blah, blah. And then my friend would not say anything about it. Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know, you have to stand up for me in those situations. You have to do X, Y, Z in those situations because mm -hmm. they're not going to listen to me. But they're going to listen to you. Right. And, you know, in, in those conversations, they would be, I don't see why I have to do that. Or... Mm -hmm. I don't disagree. I got that too. And I was like, I'm sorry, you've been quietly <laughs> like a racist this whole time. And I just didn't know, you know, right, right, right. like, how are we friends? Like, how do you see me as a person? Yeah. And I think also I personally struggle because as a woman, you don't want to like, we're raised to not want to um, invite conflict, right? We mm -hmm. want to mediate the situation. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to fight strangers because I don't know how they're going to react. Mm -hmm. Like, Will they, like, shoot you? You never know, right? Yes, yes. Um, is this an open carry state? I don't know. Yes. No, yeah. closed carry. Yeah, so you can have it. Permit. Yeah. Carry. But that's something that scares me a lot is because, right. like, when people are openly racist in public, you know, like, yes, I want to stand up for myself, but I don't want to die that day. I'm not mm -hmm. about to die in this parking lot, you know right, what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, so, and it's also figuring out, having friends who are friends with conservatives or friends with people who are Trump supporters and being like, and their sort of thing is like, we can disagree and still be friends. And I'm like, oh, what a privilege. Because yeah. I cannot be friends with people who don't see me as a person, don't think my friends deserve rights, don't yeah, think I deserve yeah. rights, right? Yeah, yeah. I want to be the person to be able to talk with these people. But as you said, you know, they might not listen to us. Mm -hmm. One, and the privilege thing is definitely good to point out. Yeah. As you said, because it's like you can afford to just have this as a agree to disagree kind of a philosophical mm -hmm. conversation. Yeah. For us, it's not philosophy. It's no. <laughs> life and death or taking away of actual rights. Right. And it's hard to explain to some people because ultimately experience is the most visceral effect. Right. It's frustrating. And... I remember I was like, you know, if you don't understand these experiences, you can Google a think piece. You know, there's so many resources for you to educate yourself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, I had a friend who told me, like, oh, well, no one really does that. Like, no one goes out of their way to do that. And I was like, I do that. Like, I don't know what a lot of, like, experiences of black people are like. So I'm going to listen or I'm going to try to educate myself, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I understand what, you know, they go through. And so some people just truly don't care enough to go, like, yeah. Another way to learn. Yeah, yeah. But they would go to college, though. Yeah. Which is <laughs> pretty much oh, that. man. Academia. <laughs> Especially in the performance world, too, which kind of just exists in this neoliberal, like, we love diversity, and then they don't do anything to build spaces for diversity to flourish, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A lot of dealing with that. A lot of people who have called me and other people of color, like, in the program, like, oh, you know, I don't know why they always have to make everything about race. And then I said, they said that about another one of my friends. And then I said, well, it's because race is kind of always at the forefront of our minds. Like mm -hmm. we enter a space and I automatically count how many people of color are in the room, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then my friend was like, oh, I never thought about that. I'm like, of course not. <laughs> of course you, you don't didn't. have to. You don't have to. Your safety isn't like contingent on that sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so just realizing that when I can and when I, I know that I'm like physically safe in an environment to be able to talk about those things or mm -hmm. try to change minds, you know, that's yeah. when I try doing it. I definitely have almost started a couple fights at like frat parties, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's okay as long as 
I think I think I'm growing and I'm getting better at being confrontational, which is something I'm proud of, like for my personal growth. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's yeah, <laughs> yeah. When you started talking about this, I was thinking Mitch McConnell's wife is Asian. Yes, yeah. there are so many. Oh my gosh, there are so many Asians. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to like draw berries, but there are so many Asians who think proximity to whiteness will save mm-hmm. them from racism, mm-hmm. um, or who blame other immigrants or who are specifically anti-brown anti-black right like Mm -hmm. they think oh like i legally immigrated here we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps and that's why we are where we are and for a long time when i was younger that's how i was raised too Mm -hmm. that's when Mm -hmm. i thought i was like oh like i'm smart because i work hard and stuff like that right but it's like no you come from a family that's all college educated you Mm -hmm. know you go to a really good school you have all these extracurricular opportunities like you have parents that support you not everyone has that and that's why you're where you are you know and it's frustrating because i think a lot of older asian americans too who sort of grew up in the era of, like, Reagan and who, like, fell into those conservative ideals and latched on to mm-hmm. them, right? And who believe in the model minority myth, too, mm-hmm. which... <laughs> yeah, I mean, those are things that, that are hard to fight, right? Positive stereotypes are very, very hard to fight because, mm-hmm. I, I mean, are you really going to say, no, I'm dumb as a brick? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, well... There are other studies, too, about especially Southeast Asians, so, like, Cambodians and Laotian, mm-hmm. like, children who actually suffered more in school because teachers thought they were fine and didn't need help. Right. And because right. of this, they didn't receive as much attention as, like, their white classmates. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also studies on um, poverty as well. It's yeah. just that people of Asian descent uh, do not necessarily get the help they need because people think, oh, Asians, they're rich. They're automatically that association with money. Right. right. And I'm like, we're all rich. Don't you think we could have bought the politicians and stuck to our countries? I mean, like, right. who the hell crosses a whole freaking ocean to get to another country where they don't speak the language? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Because they're so well off, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, too, a lot of people group the Asian immigrants together, like, negating whether they came before or after 65, right? Mm-hmm. Why they came? Did they come as refugees? Did they come? Right, yeah, because... yeah. During which wave, actually, no, right. no matter even if you're from the same country, during which wave did you come? How did you come? Mm-hmm. What was the political situation both inside the U.S. and outside the U.S. in their home country? What drove them to come, right? right? So all these factors matter a great deal in terms of the economic stability mm-hmm. and the availability that they have to resources like learning, like schools. Right. So many things that, yeah, people don't think about. And also, when you were talking about uh, education, you know, from your own background and how that's different from people that maybe when you were growing up, you didn't relate to because you didn't realize that all of these things kind of amount to privilege in some ways, is that a lot of people think of America as this, oh, if I have this beautiful paved road if I lived in this certain house or actually live in a house. Mm-hmm. If I never suffer from this A, B, and C, nobody else did either. Right. Just, yeah, like self 
stereotyping sometimes that spreads to the rest of the world. And therefore, they can say, oh, well, if I had that, when the other people had that too, why couldn't they make it? Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It was actually really sad because I had a conversation with my dad about like a month ago Mm -hmm. where he got so angry at me because of the poem I published in AZ Central. Mm. And he was like, do you think you're the only person who experiences racism, blah, blah, blah. And he got mad when I said, well, first of all, I was like, first of all, I never said that. <laughs> I'm not the only person who experiences racism. But I was like, it would be nice, right? It would, it would be nice to just, just like one person. You know, I would take that. <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, yeah, okay, yeah. just me, that's fine. But, you know, when I said like, yeah, I have experienced racism, it made him so mad because I think, he thought, you know, if I, because he grew up, like, in the hood, like, in mm. the Bay Area, I think, oh, my God, where, which city? Like, San Jose or something. But he grew mm. up, like, in poverty, right? Yeah, so right. I think his idea was, I'm going to provide a better life for my kids. And if I do that, they won't experience racism. They won't experience mm-hmm. because they'll have the things I didn't have. So I think it made him incredibly sad mm. because I was basically saying, in maybe in his mind, it doesn't matter because I'll still face difficulties yeah. in terms of like yeah. race and sexism yeah yeah it's it's there are some things that money cannot buy yes yeah it can help you avoid it in some ways but a lot of time you know people are people they don't yeah <laughs> yeah yeah oh, it's really sad. <laughs> yeah but i don't know it's, did you resolve it it was a weird conversation because usually I've never yelled at my dad before, ever, but I was so mad because it was the night before my graduation and we were picking up my grandma from the airport. And so I was like, you will not do this to me right now. And I was yelling, like, because I don't like yelling in general because, Uh like, I'm like, I'll never be that person who yells at someone to get their point across. But when I was just speaking normally, he just wasn't listening and he was cutting me off. And then I started yelling and at some point I realized he was silent and he wasn't yelling anymore and I was Uh like... Oh no, I was like, <laughs> what have I become? But I'm still at the age where I'm understanding my parents' trauma. Mm-hmm. And in an effort to heal myself, I'm also helping heal their trauma that they may not have the tools for. Yeah, yeah. And it's difficult, and, isn't it? Yeah. Because what, they came right after the war? They came, no. So they came at the end of the 70s. Oh. So my dad was 10, my mom was like six, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That means they, they were born after the war. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So my grandparents were the ones that were like kids during the war. Oh, yeah. So yeah, it's crazy. Like my grandma on my mom's side. She does World War Two or Korean, Korean War. War. Yes. Okay. Yeah. She came like right after they made the 30th parallel. She was part of the group that immigrated or were refugees to come to the South. Okay. Like, because okay. there was this influx of North Koreans who were right, like, we yeah. can't live in communism. We have to leave, like, right now sort of thing. Lucky them. Yeah, we got out yes. before. And it's knowing, right, that, like, your parents, like, may never be able to process their trauma. Yeah. And knowing that, like, you kind of have to be... And not to sound like condescending, but you kind of have to be the adult in those situations and in those conversations mm-hmm. and feel like, okay, I have the vocabulary for this because I've done the homework. Right, right, <laughs> um, right. But you didn't have that privilege. You were working to get out of poverty, which is such like a second generation middle class thing, like the privilege of self-actualization, mm-hmm. right? Being able to be like, oh, I should go to therapy. I should address these things. Yeah, yeah Instead of yeah. stuffing it all down constantly. Yeah, yeah. As you said, they didn't get a chance to do it. Or also there was stigma. I mean, there's still is yeah. stigma in terms of going to a therapist. Right. And especially, I feel like, from an Asian background. Yes, and Asian men, too. They can't. They're not allowed to talk about anything. <laughs> <laughs> and I wrote another poem in my book called... And 
the paperwork asks for my family's history of mental health because the first time I went to like a counselor I was like does my family have a history of depression does anyone have like BPD I don't know by virtue of not talking about it yeah do not exactly and I was like someone has to have something (laughs) you know but some of my other friends were like oh yeah my grandmother has like bipolar disorder Mm -hmm. blah 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 so I'm more prone to and I'm like I don't know it's like a blank slate for me yeah yeah and that's also part of the immigrant narrative in mm-hmm. some ways, right? Because this country has been privileged, the country as mm-hmm. a whole, yes. has been privileged not to have been invaded since the early 19th century. Yes. I mean, that's like practically 10 generations of just stability mm-hmm. that really allows people to forget what it's like to have none of these things. Right. Yeah. And then when we do have, like, other countries, like terrorist attacks, those are national, you know, those are big things that we remember forever. Yeah. And that stuff happens in other countries every day. All the time. All Usually the by time. us. Like, yes, yes. So, or we're arming the people who are doing it. Who are doing it. Right. Yemen. <laughs> you know, and then, of course, you have the politicians who say, oh, yeah, those countries, like, they don't know what they're doing, like, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, they're destabilized because of U.S. imperialism. Like, I don't... But they blame the countries, right? And they say, right, like, oh, it's because right, they're, right. like, these... Gaslighting. Mm. Gaslighting happens on a country-level right. basis. Really? <laughs> and, and that's U.S. history. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it goes back to your point of, do I want to be self-identify as American from that aspect? But then again, we're living American. You right. Know, like, we're making American history from this point forward. Right, exactly. So... And it's our hope that mm-hmm. as Americans, we do better, at least from our personal perspective. Right. However much of a circle of influence we have, right. we can try our best. Oh, man. We're going to be on a watch list after this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, man. What an honor. <laughs> FBI has plenty of on their hands. You know, like, um, we don't need to worry about these two Asian women on the library. <laughs> no, no, they have to worry about somebody who's very orangey, accusing them of, you know, being the deep state. Oh, yes. Right now, I think, <laughs> I think they're probably on the verge of fighting for their own survival. Oh, yeah. They're too busy. <laughs> <laughs> Are they listening to us? You bet. You. <laughs> they're probably like, yes, go off. <laughs> so, in any way... <laughs> Just to close, where do you read? Where can people see you read? Yes. So I'm hoping to do more readings at The Lost Leaf, which is on every Thursday at 7 p.m. It's through the Phoenix Poetry Slam. My friend Erin Hopkins Johnson runs it. Mm -hmm. I haven't gone back because I'm also a performer, so I have rehearsals and shows at night all the time. But I hope to do more things there. If not, you can follow me on Instagram at erin.kong or on our website at www.erincong.com. Cool, wonderful. Thank you. This was fun. Thank you. Imagine it was a lot of fun for me, too. <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad. Both Erin and I will be at the October 5th Meet Your Literary Community event at the Phoenix Public Market from 8 a.m. to 12 p.m., so I hope you'll come and say hi. You can also follow Poets and Muses either on our website at poetsandmuses.com or via social media on Instagram, Twitter, or SoundCloud under Poets and Muses. 
You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.